0: Welcome to PX15 today. My name is Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. I'd like to add a very special thank you today to our sponsor, Maddox Lawyers. Today is our first day using our new equipment, which would not have been possible without the support of Maddox. Today we'll be speaking with Shelley Penn, who's the new manager of the City Design Unit at the City of Melbourne. Shelley, welcome and thank you for joining us. Would you mind giving our listeners a very quick overview of your background and experience, please?
1: Thanks, Jess. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, well, I'm an architect, and I'm, yes, the manager of the City Design Studio, which is a new part within a, an old group, the skin, uh, Design and Projects Group, the City of Melbourne. But I've come to that from um, being born and bred in Melbourne and uh, studying architecture at Melbourne University in the early mid-80s. Um, I run my own practice for about seven years, Intensely, and then that sort of gone on, commencing in 1993, to blur over the last 16 years with um, a series of roles in public architecture and urban design for years, mm. and lots of work with the public as um, in various roles and as a consultant and stuff.
2: Shelley, your new role is with the Melbourne City Council Design Studio. Mm-hmm. What are your ambitions, and what do you see as your greatest challenge with that? Um, uh, look, I
1: think. The City of Melbourne's got a fantastic legacy of really incredible work over the last 20 or 30 years and um, a lot of that is attributable to, well, the council obviously and they've been pretty progressive through successive councils but also um, Rob Adams, I particularly say, has done an amazing job and his team and it really is a team effort and he always emphasises that. However, we're at a point of real change and um, in the sense that... The population is growing crazily, you know, climate change and its impacts are really being felt um, in very tangible ways, technological changes and so on are happening and I think now we're at a point where we need to sort of harness and um, we'll sort of focus the fantastic work that has been done and that the studio is capable of and as part of the studio, but also within the broader agenda of the council, um, look at what happens next, what's the next 20 years. So that's, that's I think you asked for ambitions and challenge that to both. <laughs> I think if I can contribute to that, that'd be great.
0: I suppose Melbourne has really evolved over the recent years, um, since the time where there was very few people living in the CBD to nowadays where we've got, I don't know how many how many people are in the CBD living, um, but it's, it's, a, it's been a huge change for Melbourne City Council. Yes. Yeah, and that was something
1: that the council really facilitated by through the Postcode 3000 um, initiative, which specifically recognised that people, the city was pretty dead on the weekends and after hours, and to make it active and vibrant, they needed people to be living here, so it just brought a much greater diversity of uses and occupations and therefore needs, which you know created a market for other kinds of retail Um, and other activities um, for people. So Mm. we've got this vibrant city that's really come specifically from that
0: initiative. Yeah, so it must be a really exciting time to be in the city development and design space.
1: Totally, Mm. and I think, I mean, the interesting challenge is, is, you know, is there too much residential? So there's got to also be a balance of the use mix so that we don't end up kind of um, killing that diversity of uses that makes it quite... Um, vibrant and interesting, all the different things that are going on, but also with residential um, occupation, those residents need to be serviced by open space and um, community facilities like schools and all those sorts of things. So you, you can't just do that without thinking of all the flow and effects and trying to provide for them.
2: Shelley, there's maybe some concerns expressed that the with the rapid population growth, that the infrastructure. And the public services and the public domain mm. can't can't cope or can't can't create the amenity that that has been enjoyed in the past.
1: Mm. I think they can if we just assume that what we've got is enough. I think we can if we are strategic about it and look carefully at what we've got and also invest in new public infrastructure and public open space. So that's got to be conscious because. Um, that is an investment, it's a cost to provide potentially new public open space. Maybe we can, maybe there's, it's necessary to purchase land to create new open spaces in the city, um, or to upgrade and, you know, the council is continually, um, creating new or improved spaces as well as renewing and maintaining its assets and so on. So that happens, but the really big substantial chunks, I think, that are needed in terms of community infrastructure and space, um, need to be really developed in a strategic way in relation to population. Fisherman's Bend is a key area where that hasn't been done well to date and I think the current government, I hope, are trying very hard to to now get that right.
2: Uh, You were previously involved in the state government's architect's office. Uh, This is an assessment advisory role. What were the most enjoyable parts of of that role? Um,
1: Well... I was really lucky to, um, along with John Denton, establish that office in January 2006. When I was the associate Victorian government architect, so John and I pretty much set it up, and that was pretty exciting because we were we believed in it totally. It was not so much about assessment, but it was about um, advocacy and strategic advice for design quality in the public realm. So. And our job was to, to really make a case for that and to convince our colleagues in government that it was important. Um, there was lots of scepticism within government departments about the creation of the office and the sort of a thought that we would just be introducing more red tape and blowing budgets and putting gold leaf on everything. And um, we were really keen to say that design quality and design integrity was critically important and was also pragmatic and that we could be practical about understanding the issues that, um, you know, transport department or major projects or whoever were facing and that we could help them enhance their outcomes. So, I mean, I loved being an advocate. I was probably a little bit evangelical and um, I liked converting people and getting recruits for design quality.
2: Shall I just a bit of role play? You're at the state government office or in your current position. I'm the proponent. I come to see you. What's the worst thing I can i can i can do it in my presentation to you
1: um depends what sort of proponent you are <laughs> if you're a government <laughs> colleague no 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 a, a, private, a private 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 developer okay so you're putting a your development forward and you want you actually want planning approval well the government architect doesn't provide planning period. they've got but just to clarify they've got no legislative capacity but they do advise the planning department usually or often referred to so um I think the worst thing you can do as a proponent is to talk about... Um, ..is to not address the public realm impacts of your proposal, to just obsess about how many... I don't know... Um, what, you, ..what your yield's going to be and, and how great the architecture is as an object, I, I probably would say is not going to really address the kinds of things that I would be looking at um, in a government role. The quality of the architecture is incredibly important, so architecture as object I do think is important, but it's more important by a long shot is how the building has an impact on the public realm, and that can be the big scale of contribution, contribution to skyline or shadowing and those really big wind impacts and so on, but also the really detailed scale of urban interface, street interface, what does it feel like for pedestrian walking past or... Um, Or for somebody inside the building who's residential, you know, how far away are you from the next tower and do you have access to privacy and light, for example.
0: So how many years did you hold that role for? The um, Office of
1: the Victorian Government Architect was here January 2006. We established and I completed two terms. So I was there for four years. Yeah. And um, had the option of staying and was really tempted because I loved it. But that took me away from my practice. So Mm -hmm. I decided at that point if I wasn't going to if I wanted to practice, I really needed to step back into practice a little bit um, and um, not continue in that role. And also, that whole idea of that role was that it was established to have a kind of ongoing connection with an understanding of industry so that you'd always have somebody who... was. There was a turnover of the government architect and the associate government architect um, so that they were not just entrenched bureaucrats, but they were people who were engaged in industry all the time. So... That's why John Denton only stayed for a short period and why I stayed for a bit longer, but also a short period. Did
0: you find at the end of those four years that confidence in, in your role, or not not you specifically, but the role of the office had, in, had improved quite substantially? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, it did specifically, and that was tested because we were originally created for two years on a kind of probation, mm. and um, we had to really demonstrate our relevance. And I mean, I remember... Uh, meeting with the then head of Major Projects Victoria who was a, who's a now a friend and he was very upfront and said um, I was pretty sceptical about your creation but now that you're here let's work with you <laughs> and he said that's fine let's get on with it and um, you know he went on to be a great supporter of the office because I think we really showed how relevant it was I mean the, the key thing is I've never met a, a, anyone in government whether it's a, an officer all the way up to a project director or a secretary or a minister who wants a bad outcome. And yet there's lots and lots of them. Mm-hmm. So what we did was very much help them get better outcomes. It's mm-hmm. not about everything being a masterpiece or you know, everything being excellent, because that's pretty hard to achieve, but making things better by working with whatever their constraints are. And that was incredibly successful. Yeah.
2: And uh, it, it's a, how do you see the government's role in promoting good design? You're talking about achieving uh, improving standards Um, the way you put it sounds a bit like you're from Toyota and manufacturing in in continuous improvement
1: Um, hopefully continual improvement but that's quite different from standards so I'd say standards are they're critical and they're part of our legislation around building and planning and they're about achieving some minimum requirements and so they're good at getting rid of the absolute worst um, including dangerous sort of places and so on but um, communicating what was the question was it was about how to demonstrate how
2: to continuous improvement
1: oh, yeah continuous improvement but more in um sorry p you did you phrase the, the start of your question was specific it was
0: um
2: okay it doesn't matter
1: it's okay i mean I, I think there's just a difference between standards which is the minimum and advocating or or really communicating it, it was nurturing better. Nurturing. Yeah, it's um, getting better outcomes is much more about yes, nurturing or fostering good outcomes, but that's through demonstration. For example, um, whether through built projects, which is probably the most tangible, because it's very hard for most people to read drawings or um, to envisage what you mean without seeing it or being able to walk through it. And buildings are very much talk to talk to the soul and to the to the um, body in three D in ways that we can't necessarily articulate. So built demonstration, but also talking about it, recognising through awards and through um, making having a demand saying this matters for these reasons um, and we want it. That sounds pretty simple, but one of the most important things governments can do is say they want an excellent outcome or they want high quality design because then industry will then respond to it.
2: One of the worst things a proponent can say to a government official I understand is, what do I need to do to get a permit?
1: Mm -hmm. Has anyone
2: ever said that to you?
1: No, because I haven't really been in the role of issuing permits, probably. But I have certainly had um, sessions where we might have been conducting a design review in some situation, and the questions that have asked, what do do we need to do? But the answer is usually more complex, because it's not about, well, if you just do another drawing or you put a line there, everything will be okay, what you're usually asking them to do is to um, put some more intellectual uh, energy into what they're proposing and to in fact often invest further in their design consultant so that their design consultant can put in the requisite um, intellectual sort of engagement and research to, to actually do something that responds well to the set of issues rather than... You know, providing a really condensed service, which is just churning something out.
0: Jonathan Gardner, in an earlier interview, PX9, I think it was, quite accurately described the interactions between developers, architects and government as the dance. Insert corny music there, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you see this process playing out in your experience?
1: Yeah, I think it's... Um Great that Jonathan sees it as a dance, and um,
0: that's a very positive spin on it. And he's a very positive guy. (laughs) So,
1: I mean, John's at a level of experience that I hope he's having a dance. He's still doing it, so I hope he'd be dancing um, because it can equally be seen as a battle, and I think many people would think of it as and describe it as a battle. Um, I think to do anything with any kind of integrity at all, from a design outcome point of view. You have to be incredibly tenacious and you have to be really clear about your vision what it is what's what are the fundamentals of what you 're trying to achieve because you have to battle that out with your client even if you 've got the most supportive client who really wants something fabulous you 're constantly having to communicate um, not just that it 's meeting their needs but it's doing something beyond them or, or how it 's meeting their needs you 've also then got a um, battle the planning counter with people who have, they're trying to meet, you know, what are the standards, That what are the boxes that we can tick. Um, you've got to, if you're doing something innovative it's usually challenging to at least some people because they haven't really seen something like that before so they may not feel empowered to judge it and to know whether it's okay or not. You've got to do that through a building process, you've got to, you know, battle all the way through construction to hang on to the bits that are important. So. In fact, it's damn hard work, which is why I'd say it's great if um, John's Hmm. dancing. Shelly, hearing
2: all that, who would, why would anyone want to be an architect?
1: Well, I think architecture is full of people who actually are deeply concerned with um, the human condition, and that's certainly why I did it. And um, the vast majority of architects I know do it for that reason, and they actually can contribute to that in a whole range of ways. I mean, for me, the I was pretty ambiguous about doing architecture. And um, in fact, it was not until my third year, after my third year, that I really started to enjoy it and develop a love for it. And part of that was being privileged to visit a building in Japan, which was a Frank Lloyd Wright house that he had designed in 1921. And it was been acquired by the local council, and they had it as Japanese style to completely cover it, wrapped in scaffolding. So you actually couldn't really see the building, from the exterior but we got to have a tour of it and um, it was covered in dirt, all the doors and windows were off, off their hinges and stacked up, there was rubble, um, but this, just walking through the spaces I was actually brought to tears and that was because of the spatial the proportions and the quality of light even in that condition, it was just extraordinary and it kind of hit me that's what architecture, really great architecture can do and um, I think that's true of great urban design and great landscape as well. So that, for me, was the inspiration to go, this is, wouldn't this be fabulous to be able to move somebody in that really gut-level way, um, so to speak, to their soul rather than their mind? Um, and I think most architects are kind of driven by that to at least some extent.
2: Oh. Actually, there's been significant changes in city making in, in the last 20 years. And with that sort of renaissance that you mentioned in the early 90s and late 80s, what can we expect the city to be like in 2036?
1: Gee, I don't know. (laughs) More busy. (laughs) I mean, I think it'll be just... It'll be kind of a case of needs must, and I'm hoping the must will be um, much more rich and holistic and integrated ways of creating places for people. I think uh, we've been, particularly in Australia, able to be kind of lazy in our planning, we've got a lot of space and um, not really thinking in a networked way about transport planning and land use planning and cultural and social aspects of city design and um, that's created some really significant problems. I'm hoping that now we're seeing and the need for much more compact, nuanced, complex and rich cities. Um, that are more efficient, I mean it's all been written about, these aren't new ideas there's there's, um, great research and information about how compact cities are much better for us uh, at the sort of human individual level but also at the kind of um, the state or national cost sort of level Um, and they're much better in terms of environmental benefits um, access to services and work and all those sorts of things, so I'm just hoping we'll see that working well, but I think also um, part of that is having a much more nuanced understanding of the importance of place at the pedestrian level, so hopefully we'll get those bigger gestures of um, big picture pieces in a more integrated way, planned better, but also much more diverse and rich individual places within the city that are about servicing people that are really... um, human scale. Um,
2: what about the intelligent city? The, you know, the use of computers and everything to make the city spaces function yeah. and respond to movements of people?
1: Yeah, look, I'm not an expert on technology by any stretch, but I think that's just pervasive and, and inevitable. I think even just, um, well, we know using apps, you can be, this isn't a city function, but, you know, I was walking along the south New South Wales coast over the summer and on a 9k walk and we, were, we had an app that was telling us the uh, indigenous history of the area and you know all sorts of other interesting facts It just become something that we we use um i think that will happen in cities definitely um in a whole range of ways that i i can't predict um, that's just my limitation
0: Now, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this term, neighbourhood character. Um, New architecture is sometimes resisted, as it's said, not to fit within the existing neighbourhood character. Is there too much fixation on this status quo, do you think?
1: Um, It depends what you mean by status quo, but I think neighbourhood character is a problem, but it's as in the use of that term, but it's only because that's used at the sort of town planning approval level as a way of trying to capture what is in fact a really complex thing. Yes. And so I think um, it's important that there's some sort of protection there and communities have a very rational fear of poor development. There's been a lot of indiscriminate development and in fact there are probably more examples of bad development than good development. Definitely. Although I think that's changing. Um, And I think I think the um, important thing about neighbourhood character is that there needs to be a much more nuanced way of talking about it. And so at the planning desk, you can tick boxes and can measure certain things, but you also need some judgement around what is good quality. Mm. So I think often you can get um, interventions that are incredibly innovative Um, might look radically different at first glance, but in fact are really appropriate and authentic as responses to a neighbourhood because they take note of and defer to things like the predominant scale or proportioning or they make reference to local materials Mm. or make reference to local details without mimicking them or copying them, which I think is usually not very good Mm. in terms of the outcome. So part of that's about empowering communities to talk about Good design, so that they're not just sort of saying it doesn't fit with the, the neighbourhood character. It's not just communities, though. It's planners. Mm. Um, I think often are not empowered, and or councils or, or responsible authorities are not empowered. I think we need, for example, as well as um, planning approvals, to inform that as we do at the state level, expert design um, review that mm. can assist That's in right. making judgments. Um,
0: so it's really more about um, a broader understanding of how the architecture fits in within the streetscape, as opposed to saying that house doesn't have a pitched roof. or, you know, There's... exactly, and that's I think where we do get bogged down in in this detail sometimes at a at a council planning level. Exactly, because mm. I
1: think it's it's too easy to think of neighbourhood character as being about mimicking yeah. um, aspects or elements of existing places, mm. rather than saying what is it about the place that's interesting and could this thing that looks weird or different in fact be responding in a really positive way. There are some great examples of that. Um, One Melbourne example is, uh, it's a city example, so it's not a suburban one, but it still stands, is Monaco House by by Charles Ryan in Ridgeway Place, which is a quite obviously radically different and innovative structure, but if you look at it in in its very old-fashioned streetscape, um, opposite the gardens of the Melbourne Club, it's the scaling of the building as a whole, the way it's articulated, so this sort of faceted facade kind of makes reference to adjacent heritage buildings. Um, even there's a little bit of a patch of um astroturf or, you know, fake grass at the front, which makes a little kind of faux reference to the idea of urban design and streetscape, plus the way it actually opens onto the street. It's just a great example of something that looks Gee, how does that fit? Well, it actually does fit in a really considered way. Um, And there are other suburban examples
2: as well. Shelley, um, programs like Grand Designs Australia and things like that, I mean, there's a lot of interest in architecture and and new forms. How do we promote the transmission of new thoughts in architecture to the broader public?
1: Um, Well, I think uh, similar to um, what we talked about earlier, that um, demonstrating... And then talking about what 's good about places, so Dem- people love good places. If you build a good place when I say build i 'm not really limiting it to architecture, but i 'm really interested in landscape places and urban design as well. If you build good places, people love them, they go to them, and that 's because good isn 't just about looking good it 's about functioning well and connecting appropriately or effectively to places around it, being feeling safe and feeling comfortable and Just offering places that you feel like you can rest or do a range of different things. Those are good places. People love them and flock to them. If we can then talk about why they're good, um, what's good about them, that helps people to see. um,
2: A bit like explaining art?
1: Yeah, uh, although I think it's different because art is, um, I think that's exactly right, but it's just different because art is often, you can talk about that stuff and people can still think, God, I just don't know, can't get into that, I I can't understand it. And, that, and that's fair enough. And you can leave it on the wall and that's kind of the role of art or you can, you can walk around it and ignore it. But public architecture and public places, um, well, well, they are public places, I guess, is what I'm saying. Every bit of architecture has an impact on what's around it. So I, I feel very strongly and I've always felt very strongly it's not OK to just do something that's engaging or interesting or lovely as an object alone because it will have an impact on you know we've all got to live with it so it's responsible and more broadly Uh,
2: the the iPod or derivatives are ubiquitous Mm -hmm. Um, do you believe headphones have changed how citizens experience the city Uh, do we need all of our senses to truly experience the the city space
1: Um, yeah look I think they have um, absolutely you know I mean obviously if you've got something buffering your sensory experience with the world around you, you'll experience it differently. Um, But I guess I'd also question why sometimes people are wearing headphones. Maybe it's because they need to escape. And that's kind of a sign that we need to uh, create respite in the city and places where people can um, retreat. And I think also we need to acknowledge that sometimes that will be to music or to a podcast like Planning Exchange or to whatever it is they want to listen to. Um, I think um, I do think real experiences of, of place if places are good, people probably they might be taking their headphones off I guess I'd hope because they want to be engaging and, and they feel less they don't feel imposed upon by their environment, they feel comfortable in it.
0: Mm. I suppose the flip side to that as well is what we were talking about earlier about using apps um, mm. on your iPhone yeah. to actually um, assist in your experience yeah. or complement your experience of the street and Mm. and the open space. Yeah, and I Mm. think
1: also uh, if you think about accessibility, um, some people are less able to, um, you know, walk or to hear or to see and so technology is a wonderful thing in helping enable those people to experience a city more fully, Mm -hmm. for example. So I do think it cuts in different ways and um, I might, you know, I saw it baby in a pram the other day who was glued to an iPhone, they were watching a movie or something and I remember kind of being shocked and disappointed that the kid wasn't moving a muscle um, and I saw them 20 minutes later and they were in exactly the same position and you know I kind of thought a one year old should be rattling keys or making funny noises with their voice because they're just trying it out or you know looking around in wonder um, but then I kind of thought I shouldn't really be judgmental because the mum probably just needed a break um, and I wonder what that kid will do when they're 20 with technology have brought up with that you know they're a human being with needs and connections to the world I think we find ways and technology can I think will be fascinating to see what it it does to us in another twenty years what we do with it
2: is there anything from the past uh, previous um, century I'm talking about the nineteenth century I
1: wasn't
2: gone then, but yeah. no, no, no that uh, that you would you would like to bring back to the city? Is there anything from the past, from historical cities that you think can come back or or could be promoted?
1: It's uh, an interesting question. I think there was a much more um, pronounced understanding of the value of civic places, um, say, in the 19th century and earlier. And so the investment in incredible edifices like... Houses of Parliament and so on but also post offices and banks they were grand buildings and they weren't all good buildings but there was a clear signal of investment in the public realm and in the civic um, civic places as important and that sends a signal to people, you feel like the civic is important um, and it's being invested in and I think that's a really we see that now where there are um, great public open places that have been created within cities that have been well-designed and well-constructed, you feel valued by those places. You feel as though you matter as a member of society and you tend to then respond accordingly, meaning you you take care of the places. So I'm kind of deviating into a detail in a way, but it's an example, I think, that illustrates the point, which is um, places that are well-designed tend to... ..are less likely to be graffitied or vandalised... It's like, um, I remember, you know, we'd have parties in share houses when I was eighteen and you'd clear all the furniture out and remove anything nice because you thought it was gonna get trashed and so what happened? Everyone came in, they trashed the place and they spilled their drinks and buttered their cigarettes on the floor and then at some point we realised after a few years that actually if we left it looking quite nice people would take better care of it and they did. And that's true of the public one as well. Um so I think the investment in civic is a relevant one, yeah.
0: I'd say that most citizens, particularly in Melbourne, live within suburban areas. Um, do you think that modern architecture has very little influence on these areas? Um, do you think modern architecture has become the hobby of the elites? Um, uh, I think there's a few
1: things in there. Um, architecture in Australia has always, I think, generally been perceived as an elite um, service. Mm. Um, In fact, I think it's not. Um, I certainly was brought up, and most of my friends and colleagues were brought up on very tight budgets um, for people who just thought, surely we can do something more interesting than what's available out there. There's got to be a way, and and most young architects are up for trying really, really hard for not very much money and doing clever things. Um, But having said that, an architectural house designed by an architect, is a one-off. It will always be more expensive than a row of 20 houses that are the same, the fringes of suburban development because you just can't build cheaper than those houses. Mm. So, yes, it's going to be more expensive and therefore will feel less attainable to some people. On the other hand, if you look at the cost associated in a bigger picture sense with living out on the fringes, buying a house for, you know, hardly anything... Now, it's still a whole lot of money for people. But then you add on the costs of that the state has to invest in infrastructure and then the cost of travel for those people and the human cost in terms of time away, travelling, time away from their family, whatever. It'd be interesting to see how it starts to stack up as opposed to buying something with no car park um, closer to the city mm. and spending um, a similar amount of money renovating something. Um, it's not an easy equation and you can't mm. tell people to go and do that, but if there was a, a bigger sort of um, rationalisation of those costs, it would be interesting to see.
0: So how do you think we add some architectural variety into those um, fringe area housing developments? Um, well, What's the best way for us to try and include that? Because I think at the moment we're certainly faced with an issue of, um, like you described, having you know 20 houses mm. in a row that look exactly the yeah. same and... You know, what are they going to look like in 20 years? It's
1: very hard to influence that. And I've been involved in um, one significant project when I was the Associate Government Architect, working with then Vic Urban and the Department of Planning and Community Development, as they were then called, and others, on the Department of Housing, in fact, on some new models for housing that was sustainable, affordable housing um, for exactly that situation. And Mm. the idea was to... Uh, we ran a competition. We got, I think, four, uh, four design teams who did, I think, I think, two houses each. I can't remember exactly. But they were built out in Dandenong, and um, the idea was to demonstrate. People would come in and look at them and say, I want one of those, or I could do something like this. Um, Similarly, I was on a jury that gave an award to some guys in Canberra who were doing the same thing off their own bat. so it wasn't a public project, it was a private one, where they just figured there's got to be some better alternatives we can do, um, you know, five-star houses or six-star houses, I think they were doing, that are really affordable and spatially more interesting and engage better with their science and actually are better for people. I don't know how either of those projects has panned out in reality, but I'm not seeing those places being rolled out en masse which is depressing, hmm. um, I think it's really difficult. I think just continuing to talk about and show alternative models to the market is the key um, and also engaging in a more meaningful way with those developers so that they might see some benefits from thinking slightly differently as well. But uh, And some of them are very innovative and are engaged in innovative alternatives, but at the end of the day, there's a very conservative Idea around that market and the product, which is what it is, mm. and um, the profit and so on that's associated with it. So, I, I think there's an easy answer to that one.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky one, definitely. So, just finishing up, Shelley. Just interested to know what are you currently reading, watching, or listening that inspires you?
1: Um, okay, so uh, I've been listening to Kurt Vile a lot lately. Um, I'm always listening to PJ Harvey. Who I think is incredibly innovative. We were talking about innovation in architecture, and I think she's a brilliant innovator. Yeah. Every album of hers is different, um, and, and yet there's usually a theme or there's a whole range of things going on within any one album, and they're all really authentic and powerful. I think she's amazing. Um, I've been reading uh, what a lot of people are reading at the moment, which is um, up to the last book in the. Um, my Brilliant Friends series by Elena Ferranti, which are fantastic novels that I recommend for anybody, set in Naples, the story of two girls and their friendship uh, all the way through their lives, from being very young to being old. And um, it's fantastic because it really, well, apart from being brilliant writing, it conveys a sense of Naples and the culture of Naples, including its built form. It's a really holistic kind of sense of the place that makes you feel you're immersed in it, which is what novels are all about mm. yeah.
2: Mm Well, Shelley, thank you very much for this very informative uh, interview. And, um, Jess, thank you for our our first interview for the year. Uh, Details of uh, further podcasts are on our website, www.planningexchange.org. Thank you. Thanks.